Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 1.4, Overcoming Chaos. Well, good to see you back again. To sum up this topic so far, under the heading of chaos, we've considered in 1.1 the existence of chaos as a kind of starting point, which God gladly interrupts. We've seen in 1.2 that Genesis 1 presents a kind of liturgical celebration of the fact that God brings order and overcomes the mess, redeeming and rescuing us from various life-diminishing forces that are at work. And then in the last podcast in 1.3, we looked at the way that the biblical authors speak of sea monsters as a way of depicting that powerful chaotic force that wants to swallow us whole. So in this last podcast under the heading of chaos, we're asking what does the Old Testament have to say about how we might go about defeating those chaos monsters in our lives? And believe it or not, we're back to Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 yet again. I told you there'd be a lot in those two verses and sure enough, here we are. So if you have it in front of you, have a look at it. What clue does Genesis 1 verse 2 give us about the defeat of chaos? Now, I'm aware some of you might be driving, so don't try and read this as you drive. Let me read it to you. It says this, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. And listen to this last phrase, While a wind from God, or the Spirit of God, or the breath of God, swept over the face of the waters. So the waters of chaos there are being disturbed. Disturbed by what? By a wind from God. But as we noted before, that can also be translated the breath of God or the spirit of God, God's spirit, wind or breath. And that word itself is is interesting because in all three of those translations, it refers to the movement of, of, of air. In one sense, this wind of God that moves over the waters is something unseen. No one can see the wind, but we see the effects of the wind, whether that be the shaking of trees or the blowing away of worthless chaff or the ominous rolling of storm clouds, we see what the wind is doing. Second, the movement of wind and breath is unpredictable. I like the way that this is put in the New Testament in John 3 verse 8. It says the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And third, theologically, it's also significant that God's wind or breath or spirit is powerful. The spirit of God is the agent of creation, present in Genesis 1 and then again in Genesis 8 when the world is remade. Also in Job and in the Psalms, the spirit is what makes creation possible. Throughout the book of Judges, God moves people to action. How? By his spirit. It's a strong theme actually in Judges. Let me just read you a couple of verses. Uh, Judges 3.10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. 6.34, but the spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. 11.29, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. 13.25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan. Uh, 14.6, the spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson and he tore the lion apart barehanded as one might tear apart a kid or a baby goat. 14.19, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. That's on Samson again. 
1514, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, that's Samson again, and the spirit of the Lord rushed on him and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. We get the point, don't we? That when God's spirit fills a person, they can do almost anything. Finally, the the spirit in this passage, it represents in Genesis 1, God's personal presence. As one scholar puts it, um, who wrote a massive book, by the way, that treats every single occurrence of the word spirit in the New Testament, the spirit is God's empowering presence. And that's not a bad definition of the spirit. In Haggai uh, 2 verse 5, God speaks of his promise to stay with Israel after he saved them from Egypt. And his words there are, my spirit abides or stands among you. It holds fast. Do not fear. That's God's empowering presence. So coming back here to Genesis 1 verse 2, right before God says, let there be light, and he begins to put everything in its proper place to make human life possible, we have the spirit of God hovering over the waters of chaos, causing ripples, making waves, shaking things up. And that's how God defeats chaos. He triumphs over it by his spirit. God's creative power, which speaks the world into being and defeats the life-diminishing forces of chaos, is the same spirit that God breathes into us. Now take a minute with that one. Don't just say, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Think about it. There is a God, a supreme being who is personal, powerful, and loving, who created everything that is, and that God, that same God, breathes his own life into you so that like him, you can overcome life-diminishing forces and flourish as a human being. Do you, do you get how mind-blowing that is? We often think of the Holy Spirit, I think, as a, a New Testament reality. You know, we read the Gospels where Jesus lives this remarkable life because he's empowered by the Spirit of God. And then in the opening chapters of Acts, we see that same spirit come upon the apostles at Pentecost and the church begins to grow and grow and grow because of the life-giving power of God's spirit. Well, sure, that's all true, but don't think that the spirit of God hasn't already been breathing life and power into people throughout the Old Testament. Now, I already read a bunch of verses from Judges about God's spirit coming in power on people to accomplish certain things. But let's take a look at uh, one other book in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God features strongly. This is Ezekiel 37, a chapter where the prophet has a vision of a valley filled with dry bones. And before I read this, let me just give you a quick bit of background. The dead dry bones in this vision are the people of Israel, okay? The vision begins with Israel's death because the life-threatening forces of chaos have won. This is that same context we were talking about earlier. The Babylonians came at the beginning of the 6th century and utterly destroyed Jerusalem. So Israel is here, these scattered, dusty, dry bones. All life is gone. All hope is extinguished. And Ezekiel in his vision stands in this dry, dusty valley. And God asks him a question. God says, can these bones live again? Now, I think Ezekiel, he senses a trick question and he gives a great answer. He says, uh, I think you know the answer to that one. <laughs> well played, eh? He throws it right back on God. And of course, Ezekiel's right. God does know. And God says, I will put breath or wind or spirit in you 
and you will live again. But what's fascinating here, in my mind at least, is that God doesn't just say, all right, Ezekiel, I'll sort this one out. You step aside and watch. And so listen, listen to what actually happens. I'm reading from verse 4. Then he said to me, that's Yahweh said to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded and as I prophesied, Suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Do you see what's happening there? God asks Ezekiel to get involved. Do you think this, is, this can happen? God asks, and Ezekiel says, uh, hey, if you say so, then yes. And God says, well, you prophesy and I'll make it happen. I'll read a few more verses and you'll see this same pattern again. This is from verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude. What a sight, hey? Can you imagine? It sounds a bit like an epic zombie flick, but even more awesome than that, because these people, they're not rotten steaks with a bit of random brain function. They're living people. And also, you've got to understand, this vision isn't entertainment for Ezekiel. It's not a bit of Netflix on a Friday night. It sounds pretty cool to us reading it, but this is Ezekiel's own people, friends who've died in the recent destruction of Jerusalem, and what God is talking about is impossible. He's doing the impossible. I mean, if I suggested to a couple of mates that we hit up the local cemetery one night and just see if we can find a full human skeleton and see if we can bring it back to life, they'd be making a few phone calls, right? No one, nobody actually expects human bones or dry bones to come back to life. And maybe, just maybe that's how you feel when you think about the chances of overcoming your chaos monster. No chance, not going to happen. Well, I wonder if you noticed the pattern in these verses, because it's so encouraging. God acts to overcome, right? Even to reverse death's effects on Israel. But at the same time, he insists on Ezekiel's participation. It's the prophetic speech of Ezekiel that kicks things off, even if the restoration of life is from God. And it follows that same pattern as the one in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, uh, first God forms a human and then he breathes life into him. And here in Ezekiel, the bones come together. And God's spirit, which has been hovering over the chaos, like it was in Genesis 1, is breathed into these bodies, bringing them alive. The promise here is amazing. And we again, we just need to pause because this is a promise for us, for you, as you think about chaos. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. 
I will put my spirit in you and you will live. This isn't the only place we hear this promise. It's in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as I mentioned, but it's also in Job 33.4. It's here in Ezekiel. And I probably don't need to tell you that it's all throughout the New Testament as well. As Paul says in Romans 8.6, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. When we consider the message of the whole Bible, we see that every person is made in the image of God and that God's intention is for every person to also be filled with the Spirit of God, images of God filled with God's life-giving breath. In a nutshell, that's God's plan for being human, images of God filled with the Spirit of God. And we see this in various ways and places in the Old Testament story. So Ezekiel 36, 26, just in the previous chapter to what we were reading, it says, A new heart I'll give you, and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then in the New Testament, we get this. Romans 8 verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And finally, one more, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. See, when God's image is filled with God's spirit, we're made whole. We're enabled to do the things we were created to do. So if we come right back to our question now, how do we overcome the chaos monsters in our lives? Well, to put it simply, we collaborate with God in the ways that we've been talking about. God's personal spirit combats those forces of sin and chaos in our lives. The Spirit of God brings order and healing and clarity. God's Spirit empowers us to overcome life-diminishing forces or urges, things that we would often call sin. God's Spirit gives us spiritual gifts and enables us to use those to bring fullness of life to others as well. So as we come to the end of this section on chaos, here's a question I'd like for you to reflect on. What is the Spirit of God doing in your life at the moment? Have a think on that. What is the Spirit of God doing in your life at the moment? See ya. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.